Welcome back to another episode of the Insurance versus History podcast, where we examine how insurance changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. Once again, I'm Meredith, your host, and I have both a bachelor's and a master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. You want to know how insurance works? History can help. We'll learn a little history and a little insurance, but I promise to make both interesting. ask someone in insurance about the most important events in the insurance industry, you'll probably get a range of answers, but many similarities. 9-11 will definitely be mentioned. Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, or Harvey. Depending on who you talk to and how old they are, you might get references to asbestos, or maybe the tobacco settlement, or opioids. But if you're talking to someone who works at a company that's been around for a while, Uh, 125 years or so. And definitely, if you're talking to someone who's ever worked at Fireman's Fund, you'll probably hear about the San Francisco earthquake. What earthquake, you might ask? Maybe you've heard about the big one that's due sometime in the future. They've been waiting for that one for a while, by the way. Or you might rack your brain thinking that in the absolute stew of bad environmental events we've had over the last 15 years, you've somehow forgotten about the San Francisco earthquake. Well, you'd have to go back to 1906 for that earthquake. Maybe you've never heard about it, but you have heard about the San Francisco fire at the turn of the 20th century. Don't worry. They're the same thing. Though there's a very good reason that people might remember the fire and not the earthquake. Today's topic is the 7.9 magnitude earthquake that hit San Francisco on April 12, 1906, and the fires afterward, both of which contributed to the near-total destruction of San Francisco at that time. I would call this the first major catastrophic American insurance disaster, though certainly some might agree that there were others. I think I can prove there were none on this scale. General estimates of the cost of loss from this event are in the range of $520 million, or $10 billion in 2021 money, adjusted for inflation. It's really quite staggering to think that there was a loss of that size in America in 1906. And without insurance, it's likely that San Francisco would not have recovered to become the city it is today. San Francisco, as you may know, was not originally called San Francisco. Different Native American tribes apparently occupied the land around the bay, though at the time of the first European contact, the Yalamu people who lived in the area called it the Place at the Bay. Several different European exploration parties stopped at this Place at the Bay and established small settlements, mainly Spanish, but also including people like Russians. There's some dispute when and how exactly the name of this place became Yerba Buena, which is also the name of an herb that's found nearby. But the name of the bay was the San Francisco Bay. This sometimes led to confusion, and in 1847, the town officially became San Francisco. The town population was only ever a few thousand people until 1848, when gold was found in the nearby Sierra Nevada region. 
Disembarking from a ship landing in San Francisco was the easiest way for the enthusiastic 49ers to get to California. And as a result, the population of the city exploded. 40,000 people landed in San Francisco in 1849 alone. By 1906, the town was California's largest city with a population of 400,000 and was one of the most diverse cities in the United States, with a sizable Chinese and Japanese population, among other immigrant groups, though the town was still about 95% white. What immediately stood out to me when I started researching this was how much of San Francisco was established on what we might call created or made land. As San Francisco ran out of easily settled area in the 1850s, someone had the brilliant idea of settling not just the waterfront property, but literally parts of the land under the bay, some of which were 35 feet underwater. Owners of those water lots began filling in the water they owned with mud and rocks from nearby land. Some even sank ships in their floating real estate to create immediately available permanent structures. Eventually, these areas became part of San Francisco proper. As a result, much of San Francisco sits on land that was created by humans through the displacement of water. Knowing what we know now, that a big earthquake was coming, maybe you can imagine how this might eventually become a major problem. It was already a problem even before the earthquake, because the land was so unstable that it moved and sank when you built on it. For example, in 1850, San Francisco's newly built American theater had its opening night, and the building literally sank two inches between the time that the doors opened to the sold-out crowd and the time its doors closed later that night after all the guests had left. It wasn't unusual for new buildings to sink up to six inches in the year after their construction. In insurance, we call this type of sinking subsidence. And as you can imagine, it can be very hard and expensive to fix, not to mention being rather dangerous. In addition, this type of land, this made land, is subject to a phenomenon called liquefaction, where the movement of an earthquake literally liquefies the loose, wet, filled land and makes it flow like water. Put some buildings on top of this land, even if you drive piers or pilings far into the ground to try and support them, or run gas or water lines through it, and you can imagine what happens. San Francisco had had earthquakes before. Some were quite destructive, for example, in 1865 and in 1868. So they knew that earthquakes were something that happened with some regularity, And they knew that earthquakes were particularly problematic with this created land because they had seen what happened when an earthquake met a building sitting on land that had been made by humans. And every time they had an earthquake, they quickly rebuilt, which at first seems like it speaks to the perseverance of the people of San Francisco. But on second thought, building fast meant not taking the time to fix the issues that had arisen. While the world didn't have the technology or know-how that we do now about building earthquake-proof buildings— though you could definitely argue our knowledge now isn't exactly complete, people in the late 19th and early 20th century did know that a stone or brick building was less likely to be damaged. Problem was, building something with stone or brick took time and money. If you wanted to, and could afford to, build a brick home, for example, you had to wait for bricks to come from the East Coast as there was no local place that made them. It was faster and cheaper to build with wood, Something like 90% of the buildings in San Francisco in 1906 were made of wood. So even after an earthquake had toppled a wood building, generally speaking, San Franciscans usually decided to rebuild with wood again, just repeating the cycle. 
On the early morning of April 12, 1906, most people were in bed soundly sleeping at 5 a.m. A few vendors and those who worked at night were probably still up and about. When the first pre-tremor hit at 5.12 a.m., it probably shook a few people out of their beds. But some 20 seconds after that tremor, the real earthquake struck, lasting almost 45 seconds. The earthquake could be felt as far west as Nevada, as far north as Oregon, and as far south as Los Angeles. While the destruction in San Francisco is best known, the earthquake destroyed property and caused serious damage for miles up and down the California coast. The ground moved like waves. Gas and water lines buried underground burst. One bystander on 10th Street reported that the street basically blew up after a gas main burst while the ground was shifting. Buildings toppled. A chimney from a nearby building crashed into a fire station, killing the head of the San Francisco Fire Department in his bed. He had just gone to sleep after a long night of fighting a three-alarm fire at the Central California Cannery. It's possible he had literally been sleeping for less than an hour when it happened. There were fire trucks at the cannery as late as 5 a.m. that morning. Homes shook back and forth and collapsed. Multifamily housing, especially large boarding homes and what we might today call tenements, completely collapsed especially in Chinatown and in working-class areas with high population density. The Valencia Street Hotel in the Mission District was a four-story hotel that sank three stories into the ground in those 45 seconds due to the liquefaction of the made land underneath it. Broken water mains poured tons of water into the submerged building and killed 200 people inside. And then the earthquake was over. But the destruction was just beginning. All those toppled chimneys full of fire and ashes, all those overturned oil lamps and stoves, and all of those broken gas mains underground and toppled electric poles above ground were bound to cause fire. In a city where 90% of the buildings were wood, this was a recipe for large-scale disaster. Initially, there was no enormous fire arising out of any of these events, but soon the fires grew from small flames to conflagrations, Something like 30 to 50 fires, some of them large enough to even have names, were eventually burning. The fires had all of that wood to fuel them, and thanks to San Francisco's narrow streets, the fire could jump easily not just from one building to the one next door, but from one building to the building across the street. In all of San Francisco, there were only two streets that were wide enough to be considered fire breaks. As I mentioned prior, the fire chief of San Francisco had died during the earthquake when a chimney fell onto the place he was sleeping. Just the year prior, the National Board of Fire Underwriters, an insurance organization, had evaluated the San Francisco Fire Department and found it to be, quote, generally acceptable, unquote, which isn't terribly high praise, but underwriters do tend to be a bit reserved in their assessments of things, to be honest. But it was an organized and funded operation. Though, to be fair, the recently deceased fire chief had been asking for improvements for years. They could have been the absolutely best fire department in the country, and this fire still would have overwhelmed them, especially since the earthquake hit the underground water main lines leading to their water reservoirs head on. And as a result, they had no easy way to get the volume of water they really needed to manage the fire. One of the things the fire chief had asked for in the past was a system of getting salt water from the bay into their fire trucks, and nothing had ever been done. So they had very little fresh water to fight fires, and pretty much no salt water. 
It was a disaster. A wireless telegraph was sent to a nearby ship in San Diego, the USS Chicago, which headed toward San Francisco at speed that same day to help. While most telephone and telegraph lines had been damaged by the earthquake or fires and were unusable, the wireless telegraph to the ship was able to get through. Other ships followed. If you remember from the episode on the Titanic, this is about the time when wireless technology had been installed on most ocean-going vessels, and San Francisco would be forever grateful. Eventually, these ships, as well as ships from the Navy, would help not only with the medical and general management of the many, many displaced people, but would also pump salt water into the flames. The city was in such chaos that, not surprisingly, Army troops from nearby Fort Mason and eventually Fort Wiley arrived to assist soon after the earthquake with fire management, population management, and city recovery. The mayor was extremely concerned about looting and general mayhem, as well as managing the fires that were destroying the city. Someone in the fire department had the brilliant idea of requesting dynamite from the Army and, conjunction with Army troops, started dynamiting buildings to create fire breaks and try to stop the spread of the fire. Unfortunately, it appears that many of the men who were responsible for this action were either completely inexperienced or, in at least one case, completely drunk. While dynamiting buildings to manage fire is actually a thing that can work, they were hampered by this lack of know-how and also the mayor's requirement that you could not blow up a building unless it was next to a burning building which in effect meant they really couldn't create effective firebreaks on a large scale. What resulted was more buildings on fire as debris from the dynamite and exploded buildings floated on the air and landed on non-burning buildings. In addition, their general focus on blowing up parts of Chinatown actually resulted in more deaths for the residents than had they probably just left things alone. By the next day, April 19th, a majority of the city had already burned to the ground, though fires were still raging in areas that had not burned down entirely already. The fires literally created their own weather system, which contributed to the movement of flames further outside the original fire area, moving to the north and east of the city. Fires continued until the 21st, when eventually the flames died down. Then, of course, it finally rained. After the flames were extinguished, what was left was total destruction. While original estimates of the number of people killed were varied, recent research by San Francisco City archivist Gladys Hansen suggests the number was around 3,000. Not surprisingly, earlier estimates did not do an adequate job of including Chinatown residents or the transient male residents who were living in boarding homes. 250,000 people were made homeless. 514 city blocks were completely destroyed, including the financial district, the wholesale district, the manufacturing district, and pretty much all of the government offices. It was literally half the square footage of the city, but it was also the half that had the majority of people, homes, and businesses. Two percent of that destruction could be associated with the earthquake event itself. The other 98 percent was a result of the fire. Basically, in a nutshell, The earthquake killed people. The fire destroyed the city. Jack London, writing for Colliers on May 5th, 1906. On Wednesday morning at a quarter past five came the earthquake. A minute later, the flames were leaping upward in a dozen different quarters south of Market Street, in the working-class ghetto and in the factories. Fire started. There was no opposing the flames. There was no organization, no communication. 
all the cunning adjustments of a 20th century city had been smashed by the earthquake. The streets were humped into ridges and depressions and piled with the debris of fallen walls. The steel rails were twisted into perpendicular and horizontal angles. The telephone and telegraph systems were disrupted, and the great water mains had burst. All the shrewd contrivances and safeguards of man had been thrown out of gear by 30 seconds twitching of the earth crust. By Wednesday afternoon, inside of 12 hours, half the heart of the city was gone. At that time, I watched the vast conflagration from out on the bay. It was dead calm. Not a flicker of wind stirred. Yet from every side, wind was pouring in upon the city. East, west, north, and south, strong winds were blowing upon the doomed city. The heated air rising made an enormous suck. Thus did the fire of itself build its own colossal chimney through the atmosphere. Day and night, this dead calm continued, and yet, near to the flames, the wind was often half a gale, so mighty was the suck. Wednesday night saw the destruction of the very heart of the city. Dynamite was lavishly used, and many of San Francisco's proudest structures were crumbled by man himself into ruins. But there was no withstanding the onrush of the flames. Time and again, successful stands were made by the firefighters, and every time the flames flanked around on either side or came up from the rear and turned to defeat the hard-won victory. From the National Board of Underwriters Report on San Francisco, October 1905. While two of the five sections into which the congested value district is divided involve only a mild conflagration hazard within their own limits, they are badly exposed by the others in which all the elements of the conflagration hazard are present to a marked degree. Not only is the hazard extreme within the congested value district, but it is augmented by the presence of a surrounding, compact, great height, large area frame residence district itself unmanageable from a firefighting standpoint by reason of adverse conditions introduced by topography. In fact, San Francisco has violated all underwriting traditions and precedents by not burning up. That it has not done so is largely due to the vigilance of the fire department, which cannot be relied upon indefinitely to stave off the inevitable. Quote from an article by historian Eleonora Rowland about European reinsurance companies in San Francisco, specifically Charles Simon, head underwriter at Switzerland-based SRC, these days called Swiss Re, in 1905. Charles Simon stated he had always expected the occurrence of a conflagration in San Francisco since he had visited the city in 1894 and formed his opinion about the peril of fire there. However, he had never before heard of an earthquake hazard in San Francisco. The National Board of Fire Underwriters said in 1905, San Francisco has violated all underwriting traditions and precedents, by not burning up. That was true. The 19th century in the United States was punctuated by large city fires, Chicago, Baltimore, Boston, New York. Insurers paid out claims, then insured the new structures that grew out of the ashes in a continuous cycle. If an insurer was lucky, they would choose the right buildings, the ones that miraculously survived the fires. Insurance underwriters will tell you, 
and they certainly did then too, that they could underwrite to reduce risk that a particular individual or insurance company could be successful in writing the right buildings. Whether or not that's actually true is a question for another day, but when the whole city is on fire, it's just luck of the draw. But the premium money was just too good to give up. There were two obvious ways that insurance companies could protect themselves from loss even before they signed the insurance contract with a particular property owner. Insured selection and policy wording. As I talked about during the Gangs of New York episode, the mid-19th century saw the application of scientific principles to the insurance industry with a new push for data-driven decisions. Researching and discovering what types of buildings were more combustible and how to make them less fire-prone how to analyze a neighborhood to determine what the particular fire risks were, the distance between buildings, building construction, what was inside the building, and so on. The industry's decisions were not just data-driven, but driven by a certain kind of Victorian moral code. The industry had this idea of ensuring what they called the moral, that's moral with an A-L, not morale with an A-L-E, by the way. And yes, I do always specify that, and it's an insurance habit. The moral customer, the type of customer they felt, rightly or wrongly, would take the necessary steps to avoid loss entirely. These moral customers were, not surprisingly, white men of a certain social class. From an insured selection standpoint, we know that about 90% of San Francisco's properties in 1906 had some type of fire insurance. This is a pretty amazing number, considering that a little over 50 years prior, almost no one had fire insurance. For example, after the Christmas Eve fire in San Francisco in 1849, historians seem to agree that not one property had fire insurance. No one. Obviously, this is partly to do with the growth of fire insurance in that time period, but I think it also speaks to people's belief that insurance was a valid form of protection in 1906, and the fact that there were enough insurance carriers to provide insurance to all those properties. That's not a small issue, by the way. By this time, most insurers were looking at their insured properties as what we call a book. So not just on an individual building basis, but as a whole, potentially catastrophic loss. So you have to consider not just the loss of one individual property, but how a fire in NYC, for example, would affect all the properties you had in New York City. Were those properties close together? Could all of them be affected by a fire that spread for three blocks, or were they spread out enough that it would take a fire that covered 10 square blocks to cause a major loss to multiple properties? Ideally, you would have a spread of risk so that no one fire could bankrupt you. This means that in a city like San Francisco, no one or two or even 10 insurance companies would want to write the majority of the properties. You needed a lot of companies writing in the city to spread the risk. At the time of the fire, there were about 225 companies who wrote insurance policies for fire on properties in San Francisco. That's pretty amazing what 50 years will do. So first, you might look at how many properties you had as an insurance company in San Francisco already before writing another new policy. Was the new potential policy one that would make your exposure significantly worse, or was it helping you spread out the risk of the other properties by being located away from those buildings? And then you might look at who you were insuring. Obviously, this is where it gets pretty questionable because there's no anti-discrimination laws in place at this time. 
In fact, kind of the opposite was taking place, and insurance companies were working off this ideal property owner idea, who, not surprisingly, probably looked a whole lot like they did. And let's face it, in 1906 America, owning property at all probably skews towards a certain demographic. And San Francisco had a lot of immigrants, Italian, Russian, Black, Chinese, and Japanese in particular. In fact, nearly one in three people living in San Francisco at that time was born outside the United States. Many of them did not own property, obviously, but for those who did, they had to get an insurance company to agree to enter into a contract for insurance at a price they were willing to pay. And immigrants may have also had little to no trust in organized insurance companies, or they may have had other avenues for insuring their risk in what we call a non-traditional or informal way. For example, by creating something we call an insurance pool, where a number of property owners all pitch in their own money, creating a pool of cash that could pay for any participant's insurance-related loss. In addition, the Chinese living in San Francisco had an additional hurdle. After the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882, most Chinese living in the United States were not eligible for citizenship, which may have affected their ability to obtain banking and insurance. In the 12-block neighborhood of Chinatown, which included something like 1,500 retail stores in 1906, only about 39 buildings had Chinese ownership. I suspect, though I don't have any proof, that few, if any, of those Chinese-owned buildings had formal insurance policies for fire. The other thing you could do if you were an insurance company looking to mitigate risk was to look at the language of your insurance policy. If you're a homeowner, have you ever looked at your homeowner's policy? Or if you're a renter, have you ever looked at your renter's policy? Go on, I'll wait. Yeah, you didn't look at it. It's okay. I mean, I was hoping yes, but I also know that you probably found the wording dense and confusing if you managed to read much more than the first page. Totally understandable. Not to knock all the amazing property underwriters out there, but I actually find property policies particularly difficult to parse. They would probably say the same thing about my 16-page-plus standard general liability policy, which is a document I can say in all honesty is actually one of my favorite written documents ever. I am an insurance nerd. I find it endlessly fascinating, and not in the least because every single word, even words like a or the, has been litigated in the legal system in the United States at one time or another. It really is a law nerd's dream. But in 1906, policies weren't as sophisticated as they are today. But there is a lot of policy wording that still persists, and an underwriter now reading one of those policies would probably be able to follow along quite easily, or at least as easily as anyone ever does reading a policy that is full of double negatives and exceptions to exceptions. Today, a lot of policy wording is standardized. And since about 1970, a lot of insurance policies use standard wording provided by an organization called ISO, a.k.a. the Insurance Service Office, which started out as a nonprofit organization of insurers and is now part of a for-profit company. But in 1906, that didn't exist. What did exist was a sort of informal borrowing of wording from one insurance company to another. If you read another carrier's policy and you thought their exclusion was better written than your exclusion, you might incorporate that wording into your policy. And to be fair, this is also extremely common today. Maybe another insurance carrier had gone to court to defend their policy wording in a claims dispute and had won. You might strongly consider borrowing their wording to add to or replace your own. 
It was and is a continuously evolving process. Though I will say I have always believed that despite all evidence to the contrary, policy wording should be clear. But that's more difficult than you might imagine. So, for example, let's think about how you might have written policy wording for these San Francisco properties. You want to provide coverage for fire. But maybe one of the first things you might consider when writing a fire policy is excluding earthquake, right? That's an act of God. We can't predict it, especially in 1906, and we really can't control for it. Today, you can buy a separate earthquake policy for your building in San Francisco, but in 1906, coverage specifically for earthquake really didn't exist. We can then write an exclusion in our fire policy that reads, this policy excludes earthquake. Okay, great. Excludes what from earthquake? Let's be more specific. This policy excludes loss due to earthquake. Okay, that's better. What if you want to be more specific? This policy excludes loss directly or indirectly due to earthquake. Hmm. Well, that might exclude a fire that was caused by the earthquake, but also the courts might say if you wanted to exclude fire anywhere on an insurance policy written specifically to cover fire, you should probably have used the word fire in the exclusion. So maybe we can make that clearer so there's no confusion. What if the earthquake causes an explosion that causes a fire? What if the earthquake didn't cause the fire in our building, but the building next door caught fire because of the earthquake, and then that fire jumped to our building? Do we want to cover that? It seems so straightforward at first, but then, and on and on and on, really. And let's not forget to mention that this earthquake exclusion, however you wrote it into your policy, hadn't really been tested in the courts yet. You don't know how a judge is going to read your wording and whether or not the judge thinks that says what you think it says. And here comes 1906 with a massive earthquake and a massive fire following that earthquake and every building you insured in San Francisco. Every discussion you had with your bosses about how well you spread out your exposure in San Francisco. Every diagram you drew showing how there was little to no chance that your entire book of San Francisco properties would burn down in one fell swoop is toast. You cross your fingers and pray. You have a major problem. The Military Secretary, Department of California. Sir, I have the honor to report that on the morning of the earthquake, on my return from ordering the McDowell to Alcatraz and Fort McDowell, I was stopped by a fireman who told me that people in that neighborhood were firing their houses as they were told that they would not get their insurance on buildings damaged by the earthquake unless they were damaged by fire. This report was not made at the time as, in a rush to do other things, it was neglected. Very respectfully signed, Leonard D. Wildman, Captain, Signal Corps, U.S. Army, Chief Signal Officer, Department of California. From a confidential paper by Rhine and Mosul Insurance Company, addressed to their lawyers, a statement from a fellow lawyer in San Francisco. There is no doubt the earthquake caused the fire and that San Francisco would be standing had it not happened. The companies having earthquake clauses have any amount of law on their side, but very few facts to present to a jury, and with few exceptions, none that I shall be able to overcome. The earthquake clause is not strong enough to hold against existing conditions. British Consul General Walter Courtney Bennett 
If the insurance is not paid, the city is ruined. If it is paid, many of the insurance companies will break. Lloyds of London underwriter Cuthbert Heath, often called the father of modern insurance and head of an underwriting syndicate that may have written up to 20% of the fire policies in San Francisco, pay all of our policyholders in full, irrespective of the terms of their policies. Edited selection from the speech of the Honorable Julius Kahn of California in the United States House of Representatives, Thursday, June 28, 1906. The question of insurance is not a loan of interest to the people of San Francisco, but to the people of the entire United States. And the people of the United States ought to know the names of those insurance companies that repudiate their policies and those that refuse to meet their just obligations. Mr. Chairman, when Congress reconvenes next December, I hope to place in the congressional record the name of every insurance company that refuses to meet its just obligations in that city in order that the people of the United States, the people who pay their premiums in the hope of recovering their losses in case of fire, may know the names of those companies that are unreliable and dishonest and that will not pay their obligations when the time comes for them to do so. Every person that carries a fire insurance policy is interested in this matter. Every person is entitled to know and ought to know whether the company that collects its premiums from him is honest or dishonest. As the displaced residents of the city huddled together in the miserable cold rain on the 21st of April, homeless, not knowing what their future would hold, many of them pinned their hopes and dreams on insurance to make them whole and to help them restart their lives. And almost from the moment the earthquake and fire raged in San Francisco, insurance was losing the public relations war. This was probably the first time that the insurance industry as a whole came under such negative scrutiny on such a large scale. Today, it's not hard to find criticism of the industry, some of it very much deserved. But back then, it was a blow to an industry who genuinely believed they were helping people. It seems like almost immediately, even before the fires had died down, people were suspicious about whether or not insurance companies would fulfill their obligations to the policyholders. Of course, that assumed that the policyholders knew who their insurance company was— If your property burned down, there was a pretty good chance that your policy paperwork burned too, and it was likely that was the only copy of the policy information that you had available. Even if you knew who your insurance company was, you still had to get a hold of them. Not to mention, it's very likely that a lot of people knew they had purchased a fire policy, but they might not have known if earthquake was included or excluded, or if fire arising out of earthquake would be covered. Those property owners who did understand their policies, however, were very quick to realize that the word earthquake should be avoided at all costs. Only a few days after the fire had burned out, the city's real estate board met to discuss the tragedy, and in their meeting notes, it clearly states that whatever happened on April 12, 1906, it should be referred to as, quote, the great fire and not, quote, the great earthquake. Other local leaders and even the newspapers were very particular about referring to the San Francisco fire and not the San Francisco earthquake. To the credit of insurance companies, insurance adjusters, who are the people who would actually meet with those various insureds, assess their losses, and determine the amount of money paid out to those insureds, descended quickly into San Francisco. Depending on who you ask, there were between 300 and 600 of them, which I actually think is pretty amazing given the time period. 
because some people were not sure who their insurance company was and because many had no idea how to reach their insurance company, especially if that company was Fireman's Fund, which was a locally headquartered company who'd also lost their property and much of their paperwork in the fires, they established several central locations for adjusters to be located. It wasn't just the people of San Francisco and the media who were suspicious. The insurance adjusters were suspicious as well. There were reports even early on that some people had set fire to their earthquake-damaged buildings to trick the insurance companies into paying claims that they would normally have had no coverage for. Gladys Hansen, the San Francisco City archivist I mentioned earlier, strongly believes now that many property owners took insurance companies for a ride. As much as $30 million may have been paid out in fraudulent claims, some helped along by government officials, one of which even conveniently worked as an insurance adjuster when he wasn't conducting government business. In a story for another time, San Francisco's government in 1906 was extremely, blatantly, criminally dirty. So this surprises me not one bit. For the adjusters who were not employees of the government, the work was hard. Processing almost 100,000 insurance policies is no laughing matter and sometimes even dangerous. Adjusters were often threatened or even beaten. Those insurance companies who had written fire policies in San Francisco had some decisions to make right away, and those decisions definitely affected how the media and other local advocacy groups viewed them. Some of those decisions looked more generous than they actually were. The primary example of this is the Lloyds of London underwriter Cuthbert Heath. Cuthbert is one of the great men of Lloyd's, and he had a tremendous impact on how a lot of Lloyd's works today, and frankly, on how a lot of insurance works today. At the time, he headed up what we call a syndicate, which is basically a group of investors, and mostly in that time, that meant individual investors, who put up money to write insurance. Cuthbert was the one who decided what got written, and he had written fire insurance on about 20% of all the properties in San Francisco. He sent a telegram to his insurance representative in San Francisco very soon after the earthquake, oh sorry, are we supposed to call it the fire? And said, pay all our policyholders in full, irrespective of the terms of their policies. This seems very generous until you learn that a lot of his policies did not have any kind of earthquake exclusion, so they would have been on the hook for them anyway. It was great for the reputation of Lloyd's, but not so much for everyone else. But this set in motion an expectation by the public that other carriers would do the same. And many of those carriers had earthquake or other exclusions that would, in theory, apply. It put them in a bit of a conundrum. Should they pay out even if they felt they had no responsibility to do so? Should they pay out some money as a goodwill gesture, but not the full policy amount? Or should they deny claims and take their chances with the courts if they felt they had a good case? About 35 insurance companies decided to pay in full outright. This included a group of U.S. carriers like Aetna and the Hartford, who are both still around today. Some of these carriers didn't have earthquake exclusions, and some felt it was in their best interest to simply waive them and move on. Fireman's Fund, who had lost their headquarters in the fire and could see the writing on the wall, knew they were going to go under as a result of the amount of money they were responsible for paying out on claims. But they decided to pay out what they could to their policyholders, go bankrupt, and then reform and issue stock certificates in the outstanding policy payment amounts to those policyholders who were still owed money. At first glance, Fireman's Fund got a tremendous amount of good press for this decision. As the newspapers and other people in the know quietly glossed over the details of the fact that California law at that time allowed company debts, 
which included money owed to policyholders, to be collected from individual shareholders in case of bankruptcy. That meant that had the fund just gone bankrupt, their largest shareholders would likely have been stuck with the responsibility of paying those outstanding claims. This way, by bringing in all those policyholders as new shareholders, it was far less likely. Some carriers weren't sure if their earthquake exclusions would really apply, or they felt the exclusion wording could be construed as confusing, so they offered 75% of the policy limits to their policyholders. The press jumped all over this, and these so-called six-bit insurers were pilloried in the court of public opinion. And honestly, unless you were prepared to pay out all claims irrespective of any exclusionary language, you were in for it with the press. If the newspapers didn't shame you directly, then there were several groups who had formed after April 12, 1906, and they would make sure that you did get shamed, deserved or not. In particular, a group called the National Association of Credit Men and another group called the Policyholders League would list out who'd paid claims and who had not and distribute that information to the press and pretty much anyone who would listen. For example... An insurance company out of Germany called the Hamburg Bremen Fire Insurance Company were beat up mercilessly in the press and by those two groups for denying all claims. In reality, they offered 75% of the policy limits to their insureds, and many insureds were actually paid in full. For sure, there were definitely some companies who decided to hold to their exclusions and deny some or all of their claims. About 59 companies took this position. Most were European, and they simply stopped writing in California after 1906. Well, so while they took a hit in the press, they concentrated mostly on remaining solvent and trying not to go bankrupt. Even a visit from the mayor of San Francisco, who visited Europe several times trying to convince insurance companies to pay up, didn't change their minds. Overall, it appears that U.S.-based companies were more likely to commit to paying claims in full, no matter the policy language, and the European companies, with the exception of Lloyd's, who often tried to pay out 75% of the limits or hold to their exclusionary language and deny claims. Despite all of the bad press that the insurance companies got, there really were only about 30 documented court cases involving insurance claims, though some of those cases involved more than one insurance claim. So one of the things you have to keep in mind when you talk about taking insurance companies to court is that generally speaking, an insurance policy is considered an unequal contract. What this means is that courts will generally recognize that one of the parties, the insurance company, is generally in a position of more power than the other party, the insured, simply because they're the ones that wrote the contract. The courts definitely keep that in mind even now during insurance disputes, especially over complicated, legally dense policy language that was written by only one of the parties to the contract. Those who were suing tried to get the claims to be heard in the city and state courts, believing that, generally correctly, the local courts would be more likely to rule in favor of the insured policyholders. The insurance companies, and in particular the European insurance companies and those U.S. insurance companies who were not located in California, lobbied to get their claims moved from state court to federal court, where they thought they would have a better chance. One reason for that was that very soon after the events of April 12, 1906, the California state legislature passed a law that required the initial court filings of the insurance companies to spell out very specifically the exclusions and the wording of those exclusions that they plan to use as their defense in court. From a regular person's standpoint, this doesn't really seem like a big deal, but from a legal and insurance standpoint, it's just not very favorable. 
While this might not have been the specific reason why, it is true that every insurance case related to the Great Earthquake tried in the state courts found in favor of the insurance policyholder and not the insurance company. Those insurance carriers who were able to move their cases to the federal courts had mixed results in the end, which depended a lot on the wording of their specific earthquake exclusion. And honestly, this is actually what you would want to hear as an insurance professional, that the decisions depended on the wording of the individual policies and not that the courts took a general position on the issue which was not specific to a particular case. There are a couple cases in particular that are useful to note. The first, Baumgartner versus Alliance Insurance Company, wasn't even actually about the insurance policy itself. It was whether or not a European company, Alliance was a British company, could be tried in state court. The courts asserted that Alliance was a citizen of its home jurisdiction, a.k.a. England, and not a citizen of California, and therefore could ask for the case to be moved to the federal courts. Unfortunately for many of those who had insured their properties with a European insurance company and had a dispute, while they might sue and win in the U.S. court system, they usually also had to eventually sue those companies again in foreign courts. Several cases involving New York-based insurance companies hinged on earthquake wording that stemmed from a policy form originally created by the Williamsburg City Fire Insurance Company of Brooklyn. Again, other carriers borrowed this wording for their own policies. So this clause is really fun. <laughs> because it demonstrates a great example of how things can go terribly wrong when people try to be clever in the insurance industry. The policy had this clause, and don't worry, I will make sure you know exactly where this goes off the rails. It read, This company shall not be liable for loss, pay attention here, caused directly or indirectly by invasion, insurrection, riot, civil war, or commotion, or military, or usurped power, or by the order of any civil authority, or for, pay attention, loss or damage occasioned by or through any volcano, earthquake, or hurricane, or when the property is endangered by fire in neighboring premises, or, unless fire ensues in that event for the damage by fire only, by explosion of any kind. Here's your problem. The first part of the exclusion talks about excluding loss directly or indirectly, okay? In the second part of the exclusion, the policy writer wanted, for whatever reason, to change it up a little. And instead of saying caused directly or indirectly, again, they said instead occasioned by or through. This is a problem. Directly or indirectly is commonly used in insurance policies, and the courts generally agree on what it means. What does occasioned by or through mean? That's a question. I don't know the answer. Unless, of course, somewhere in the policy, they actually defined the phrase, which in this case definitely didn't happen. More importantly, the fact that you used that phrase means that you, as the policy writer, are telling me, as the judge, that the phrases directly and indirectly and occasioned by or through do not mean the same thing. And so we have opened the door to judicial interpretation. In some cases, the courts found in favor of the insurance company. In some cases, in favor of the insurance policyholder. It was a mess. While most cases stuck to the standard argument of asking whether or not an earthquake exclusion should be upheld, some cases veered off into absolute desperation in order to pay claims, which probably didn't help the case of insurance companies in the press and with the public. In particular, the Levi Strauss Company had lost their factory in the fire, 
And in the course case of Levi Strauss Realty versus Transatlantic Fire Insurance Company of Hamburg, while there was no actual earthquake exclusion in the policy itself, the lawyers for Transatlantic dug out some old law books to claim that because the cause of loss was superhuman, that the insurance company was just not responsible for paying out on the loss. Not surprisingly, they lost the case, but I give them credit for creativity. The case that's most famous, actually, when we talk about court cases and the earthquake, is a case that went to the California Supreme Court. This case was brought by a group called the California Wine Association, and it was actually a combination of multiple complaints. The California Wine Association filed 30 different lawsuits as they represented 30 different entities. Originally, the cases went to state court, and then they were transferred to federal court, and then they sat around for several years before actually going to trial. Their insurer, Commercial Union Assurance Company of London, excluded losses caused directly or indirectly by earthquake. The insurance companies argued that the fire was caused by the earthquake. The California Wine Association lawyers argued that they were caused by fires that were deliberately set either by arson or by gunpowder, and therefore were not caused by the earthquake. And then they also argued the exclusion itself was illegal based on the state law of New York, where the company was based. The lawyers for commercial union thought they had a pretty good case, but in the end, they lost. Actually, several times, in fact, as the case was appealed. In the end... San Francisco had suffered $520 million worth of loss, with half of the city in ashes, and hundreds of thousands of people were homeless. This loss represented 1.8% of the entire GDP of the United States in 1906. The process of recovery took years. Little or no help came from the U.S. government, something like $500,000 in aid. While individuals across the country raised money to help the people of San Francisco, very little of it found its way to the immigrant populations of the city. The Empress of China made a personal donation to the U.S. government on behalf of the Chinese living in the United States, and that money was rejected, by the way. Even those who received money from the American Red Cross and other aid agencies certainly did not receive enough to put them back on their feet again. In addition, with the loss of so much of the city, most people also lost their livelihoods. With almost nowhere to live indoors, for almost two years, San Francisco consisted of tent camps for those who could not afford permanent shelter or wouldn't leave the city. What would have happened if less of the city had been insured, or if the insurance exclusions had held and the majority of the property owners in the city had been denied the money from their insurance policies? The city would probably look very different than it does now. Without the funds to rebuild their lives, the land that the destroyed property sat on would likely have been sold at a loss to pay debts and start over. Many of the people in San Francisco would have had to leave to find jobs and homes and just would not return, which happened after the earthquake to be sure, but many of those people were able to come back eventually. Without that quick infusion of insurance money, that might not have been a possibility. Chinatown in particular would have likely been permanently destroyed. You hear a lot about gentrification in San Francisco today and how difficult it is for working people to live there. I think you would have seen something similar after 1906 had insurance not helped people get back on their feet. The nearly $180 million in insurance paid out to the people of San Francisco was a financial lifeline for the city. Not only could businesses and homeowners rebuild, but all of the industry needed for that endeavor, workers, materials, etc., meant a financial boon for the recovering city and jobs. By 1915, the city was much as it had been, only a little better. Obviously, 
While $180 million was a tremendous amount of money, it was still only about a third of the $520 million in loss that the city suffered. And that insurance money went to property owners, not to everyone. Some San Franciscans saw it as a chance to remake the city in a way that disaffected many of the people who had lived there, especially the Chinese residents. For years, many San Franciscans, including many in governmental roles, had made no secret that they wanted to move or eliminate Chinatown and sell that land off for profit. What had been an undesirable area at the time of San Francisco's founding had become valuable property. With little or no support and no access to insurance money to start over, many Chinese fled the city for family in other parts of California, especially the Oakland area. Chinatown is located, as it is now, in a central location in San Francisco, though I imagine at the time it was originally established, that area was seen as less than desirable. As the city grew and expanded, though, Chinatown's location became very valuable to outside developers. Just six days after the earthquake, there was already a committee formed by San Franciscans, many of whom really, really hated each other, but hated the Chinese more, to move Chinatown to an area called Hunter's Point, which is near today's financial district. This wasn't a new idea. They'd been trying to move Chinatown probably from the moment they felt the land it was on had any value at all. At the time, it was definitely the boonies. The Chinese that were able to stay in San Francisco after the earthquake and the fire fought doggedly to retain the Chinatown borders and rebuild on the sites that had burned. This was supported by the Chinese government, who stated that they would build their embassy in Chinatown and they wouldn't consider moving it. It also appears that the Chinese government definitely put a lot of pressure, threatening trade even, on the governor of California at that time, and as a result, the groups within San Francisco caved. In addition, one unexpected result of the destruction of the city's municipal records resulted in the papers of most Chinese San Franciscans being completely burned away, meaning that many of those who had been excluded from citizenship could now state that they had been born in the United States and, in effect, were able to become citizens of the United States simply by claiming to be so. Finally, in a really clever example of thinking ahead, Chinatown was rebuilt in a more touristy, oriental style transforming Chinatown into a major tourist attraction and ensuring that they would be able to stay and create a successful economy for their families. For the insurance companies, the losses from the fire essentially wiped out all of their profit for the past 47 years. But for those that were able to stay solvent and chose to stay in San Francisco, the rewards were great. Insurers remaining in the San Francisco market were able to charge more money for fire insurance going forward. In fact, about 85% more. Twelve American insurers went bankrupt and several European insurers as a result of the events of San Francisco. Lloyds of London paid out $40 million, which was a financial hit for them, to be sure, but also another feather in their cap of good PR with the United States, as the company that could be relied upon to pay out loss, just as they would several years later after the sinking of the RMS Titanic. Unfortunately, one of the results of all these insurance payments, especially those coming from England and Europe, was a general tightening of the purse strings by financial institutions in those places. So much gold had been pulled out of the financial markets overseas that it caused a liquidity crisis, and that lack of lending ability was severe enough to cause an increase in interest rates and a recession in 1907 in the United States. So, where do we fall on the insurance versus history issue when it comes to the San Francisco earthquake of 1906? 
I personally think that while insurance was responsible for much of the reason San Francisco was able to recover after the earthquake, insurance was the loser here, and not just because of the size of their losses. Primarily, it comes down to two things. First, the litigation surrounding the 1906 earthquake really highlighted this idea of what we now call concurrent causation. This is an insurance term. Basically, Concurrent causation refers to a situation in which the property suffers a loss caused from both a covered cause of loss and a cause of loss that is excluded at the same time. This phrase that we've talked about, directly or indirectly, is at the heart of this discussion. While the intent of the policy writers in 1906 might have been to exclude anything in which earthquake was a factor, the question of what happens with an insurance policy when both covered and non-covered hazards are involved brought up issues that I don't think even the insurance companies at that time had really considered in depth. For example, if your building is partially, not completely, damaged by earthquake, and then a building next door catches fire, and that fire jumps to your building and damages it completely, is the damage caused by that fire covered? Is that an indirect result of the earthquake or not? In the case of the litigation around the 1906 earthquake, the courts generally agreed that fire would be covered, while the insurance companies often believed it was not. It's still a thing we talk about in the industry today. And I can say from personal experience that while we've been talking about property insurance in this episode, this idea of concurrent causation comes up in liability coverage often as well. Second, After the legal cases were well underway and insurance companies looked around to see what they could have possibly done better for the next crisis, many of them felt strongly that earthquake needed to be a universally excluded exposure and that the wording for that exclusion should be consistent across the industry. This was led by several major European reinsurers. As we've talked about before, a reinsurer is someone who insures the insurers. Those reinsurers were very unhappy that some of the insurance carriers they insured had simply rolled over and paid out money to insureds despite having exclusionary language in their policies. However, not only could the reinsurance companies not get many of their fellow reinsurers on board for this exclusion, they simply couldn't get enough insurance companies to agree, period. A few years later in 1909, the final nail was hammered in the coffin of a standard earthquake exclusion the California state legislature enacted a standard property policy that insurance companies were required to use in California that did not have an earthquake exclusion clause. The idea of an earthquake exclusion was dead, for now. It wouldn't always be the case. These days, most property policies do exclude earthquake, but that's because you can purchase earthquake coverage as a completely separate policy and not as part of your property policy. It's still considered an optional policy for many people, even those who are in areas with serious earthquake risk. For example, only about 13% of homeowners in California have it, and only about 30% of all earthquake-exposed properties in California have any kind of earthquake coverage. While San Francisco has had earthquakes since the 1906 quake, none have been on the size and scale of that event in terms of damage. While the science around earthquakes has exponentially improved in the years since 1906, there's still many unknowns. The U.S. Geologic Service estimates that there's about a 70% chance of another seven-point earthquake in San Francisco in the next 30 years. But that's just so very, very vague. Will San Francisco be prepared? Will enough people be insured? Let's hope so. A huge thanks to my editor and talented voiceover actor, Zach Stanett. You should hire him.
His information, along with links and book suggestions about this topic in case you're interested in learning more, can be found in my show notes at insuranceversehistory.libsyn.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something. 